Hey, Justin, it's Tadis. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Hey, I'm on the line with Justin Mallory, who has a uh, deep interest in background in financial planning and blogs at The Real Wealth Farmer. I asked Justin on today to talk about a recent post of his entitled Investing Stranger Things. Uh, The post caught my attention not only for the classic 1980s nostalgia, but it also raised a number of good points about how time, events, and our memories affect how we approach investing. A classic example of this are people who have lived through the Great Depression, and in many cases, their ability to take on risk was dramatically affected uh, throughout their lives by their experiences. So that seems like a good place to start. Justin, you covered a lot of ground in this post. Uh, what gave you the impetus to write it? Well, um, when when I did my, my tweet sort of introducing or advising that this post had come out, I said that I'd been feeling pretty nostalgic lately. And um I think uh, I just kind of had that general feeling over the last year or two, and um, I used the Stranger Things moniker because I think that kind of captured some of what I've been feeling. But um, I don't know. I, I've been consuming a lot of financial media, and I think just kind of having that thought and then the consumption of financial media sort of spit out this kind of combination that related to the two things, um, sort of the inputting um, information, and you're really surprised about kind of the things that your brain puts out. So that was kind of how I looked at it. And I've been noticing, uh, sort of like you said, with um, generations, and particularly the Great Depression, I've looked at some family members' portfolios and things, and I see drastic differences regardless of sort of how their risk tolerance might be, but just drastic differences based upon um, sort of the experiences in their lives. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's hard to discount the effect of time, as it were. You know, I know that uh, oftentimes when portfolios come into Ritholtz Wealth Management, they are, they're almost like a, a geologic survey of this person's <laughs> life and how it is that these certain things came into the portfolio and never really left. And so, yeah, I think that's a really underrated idea. And I think, you know, you kind of, uh, you approached it in a, in a really interesting way. Great. Well, yeah, I, I um, that's something I always try to do. Um, I like, um, um, for anyone that hasn't checked out my blog, um, I sort of like the metaphorical way of relaying some of these uh, pieces of information. I think I, you know, can kind of draw people's attention, and I hope that people kind of enjoy reading it as well with uh, mixing it with sort of getting some concrete uh, financial information in there. Yeah, no, I think the I think the best blogs and the ones that kind of stand out are the ones that have you know, that sort of a very personal sort of approach to things. And I think, you know, you obviously have that. So, well, thank you. Well, you know, I think what, you know, it's interesting because this week also there was a post by uh, Ryan Curlin, who's at Alpha Architect, and he had a post up talking about, you know, the ETF industry. And, you know, uh, for uh, for those of us who are in the financial blogosphere, it seems like all we talk about are ETFs, you know, uh, 24-7. And he had an interesting post up. And one of the things that jumped out at me was this idea that, you know, as much as we talk about ETFs, mutual funds as a whole still have four times the amount of assets under management than ETFs in the United States. And it's like, you know, that's a real head scratcher. We spend all our time talking about ETFs, but, you know, this kind of legacy industry, the open-end mutual fund industry still has uh, not only more assets, but, you know, if you think about it, the, the impact on people's portfolio is still very large. 
Yeah, I I saw Ryan's post and I, I did glance through it and I felt like it, you know, sort of related to some of the things that I had written. Um, we do spend a lot of time on ETFs, I think, because they're capturing a lot of the flows, but also just generally passive investing, if you want to call um, ETFs and, you know, certain ETFs maybe are or aren't, or maybe there's you know, some philosophical things about whether someone calls um, passive truly passive, but just um, indexing and ETFs have captured a lot of the flows. But to your point, there are a lot of assets still in mutual funds. A broker that I know had pointed out to me that, you know, there was, he had a lot of old uh, A share business. And it sort of said to me, there's been kind of a, a set it and forget it mentality, which, you know, for investors can be both, you know, could be good or bad, depending upon the vehicle that they're in and the and the expenses and so forth. But I think it behooves everyone to sort of check on those things every now and then. Yeah, no, it's it's very much very much a trade-off. You know, we talk about this the set it and men, uh, set it and forget it mentality. Uh, oftentimes, works very well for people, but if you are in a vehicle that is uh, high fee. You know that is a you know that's a significant sort of trade off. So yeah, that that makes a whole lot of sense. Right. There's that um, there's that supposed fidelity study that no one can find about whether there's there's um, what was it the situation where people uh, are like people that forgot their accounts or lost their logins and those were the ones that had sort of their the the best returns. I think you know that's kind of interesting information out there. Yeah, no, that study is the financial blogosphere's great white whale. Everybody's looking for it, and nobody has yet to find it. So, you know, one of the things that I thought about, you, you had a couple of charts in that post kind of charting the way that assets in different sorts of uh, different sorts of forms have changed over time. You know, do you think that technology um, kind of technology, for lack of a better term, whether it be smartphones, whether it be robo-advisors, whether it be any, you know, insert the blank you know, insert the blank here. Do you think that's going to accelerate the change in the way people approach investing? Um, I think that technology has definitely impacted the way people approach investing. Um, one of the points that I made in the blog was just, uh, and I used, I used my, I, I used my insight about what rappers I liked um, in the late 80s and early 90s. And I was saying that it was kind of related to the information that I had as far as a top 40 countdown versus not having a true hip hop radio station. And maybe my exposure was a little limited. And I feel that the internet has just, you know, it's really flattened the information that's available out there. I think, you know, dec you know, a generation ago, people didn't have the ability to go and, you know, pull up, you know, a, you know, a website, I won't necessarily name any, any, any places, but, you know, just a website in general, or just, you know, doing Google searches about whatever they might want to do and where they can pull that information, I think, you know, versus being able to having to call up a broker, you know, a couple of decades ago to get that information. Um, it's, it's just so much, there's, it's much more unfiltered and people get to, you know, make judgments with the information that they're able to pull down themselves. 
Yeah, no, that is a huge change. I mean, the the library used to be the place you had to go for, uh, you know, for information about companies and about mutual funds. But you made sure. you, you know you made a great point, cord, kind of towards the end of your post, and you kind of said that one of the things that hasn't changed, you know, all of, you know all of these things are changing in the industry. Uh, the one of the one of the things that hasn't changed is our need and our our need to keep an eye on conflicts of interest when we're dealing with sort of third parties. And I thought that was kind of a good way to uh, cap off the post. Sure. Well, um, the, the example I used was kind of related to uh, River Advisors because there had been a lot of information about some announcements in the press. And uh, the example I think that I used is kind of an important one. Just broadly speaking, I think that there are trade-offs. People have said that when things are free, you know, you really have to question some things. Well, things may not be totally free, but, you know, businesses are in business to make money and you just have to step back a little bit and look at what are, you know, what are the things that are sort of driving my ability to obtain X? Am I, you know, paying somewhere else at Y that I, that I don't necessarily realize? And I think one of the things I had said is that financial services or Wall Street in general just has a, a bad history of, like you said, sort of the conflicts of interest, but also like a lack of transparency. And I think that the internet and a lot of people just being honest about what their conflicts of interest are have really given investors sort of a breath, a breath of fresh, fresh air that maybe they didn't have so much in, in dec- decades past. Well, you know, that is, that is a great point, and it's kind of an optimistic one. So I'm, I'm going to uh, wrap things up on, uh, on that optimistic note. And I want to thank Justin for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Todd. It was great to talk to you.